Let's pray, shall we, as we begin. Let's bring ourselves before God. Heavenly Father, you've blessed us as we have taken your word and turned it to song. You've blessed us as we've taken your word and turned it to prayer. Now we pray you would bless us and build us up. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good. We'll, we'll go a little bit slowly through the story. There are a lot of characters, aren't there? And I can imagine uh, if you're coming to this fresh, if this is the first time this week you've read this passage, uh, some of it might be a bit confusing, but it will make sense. It's really quite a simple story, but it's very profound, as is often the case in Scripture. Here last week, we looked at chapter 1, and rather than being a kind of a new beginning, what you might have expected, chapter 1 of the book of 2 Samuel, it, it was more like it was tidying up the threads of the first book of Samuel. And as Matt reminded us, that was most important because of the office Saul held before God. He was the anointed one, or the Messiah, we might say, which in New Testament Greek is the Christ. It kind of tidied up the end of the book of 1 Samuel then, which means as we come to chapter chapter 2 of the book of 2 Samuel, it's really in chapter 2 that we come to our new beginnings. David has been promised the throne of Israel by the Lord God. Saul has, well, he's been taken away from the throne in the the least ambiguous way possible. He's dead. Surely the time is right now, we think, as we read the story and live within the story. And I'd encourage you to do that over the coming term. Get to know these characters, because it's often as our expectations are are turned against themselves that we, we get the point of the passage. Now, in chapter 2, we're expecting David, surely now's the time to, to, to head out of uh, Philistia and go back to Israel and claim the throne as his own. Well, uh, uh, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 tell us about the first part of his return. And it would be easy to gloss over the details, move straight to the point where David is back home, where he ought to be. But The details of his return are significant and important. They speak volumes of David and his faith in the living God and the nature of the kingdom of God that God himself will build through David. Three aspects of David's return. Perhaps we should say three aspects of David's character that we see in his return to to Israel. The the, the first is this, humility in verse 1. I guess we might say it starts with with, with patience. He's not now a a kind of blustering young man acting without thinking. He gives time to mourn Saul and Jonathan and all that was lost. And then, verse 1, do you see that little phrase, in the course of time? Isn't that a lovely phrase? In the course of time, then he inquires of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Now, look, forgive me for repeating myself, but the Lord has already given David the throne, hasn't he? He's told him this will be his throne. He's been anointed by, by Samuel. We know already that he wants David back in Israel to, to lead his people, to care for his people. But still, David, there's no foolish presumption here. No sense of entitlement. Right, I'm heading back. Lord, you better bless this because I'm off. Now he begins with humility. Uh, far be it for me to draw us into a conversation about Meghan and Harry. <laughs> a 
contrast is pretty stark, isn't it? David doesn't begin by listing his hardships he's faced, serving the Lord faithfully. Look, I've lived in caves for all this time. It's about time you brought me back that I could sit in the palace. He doesn't list the battles he's had to fight in the name of the Lord. He doesn't talk about the people he's had to kill, though no doubt he's seen terrible things in war. He doesn't appeal to suffering or the suffering that his wife it's worse than Harry, wives, the, 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 the suffering they faced as a consequence of all that God has, has called him to. He doesn't say, look, it's about time, Lord, you, you give me what you promised. Now, there's, a, there's a mature humility in David, isn't there? He doesn't go to the press, he doesn't even go to the people. He goes to prayer. And he asks the God he serves, is now the time you tell me? And more than that, when the Lord answers, yes, go up, David doesn't even presume he'll go to Gibeah, that's where Saul reigned. He doesn't head to Jerusalem to establish a new capital. Instead, again, there's humility. He asks for direction. Verse 1 of chapter 2, where shall I go? To Hebron is the answer the Lord gives. Hebron in Judah. And then the next line, the beginning of uh, verse 2 is amazing, isn't it? David asks, God answers, how does verse 2 begin? Can you see, have a look, so simply, so David went up there. Isn't that amazing? And so we see the second great characteristic of this homecoming, commitment and courage, verses 2 to 4. Remember, David has got quite an army around him now. He could have led a, a small advance party to scout out the territory to see how the people of Hebron were feeling about him. He didn't even need to go himself, did he? He's the the head of the armed forces. He could have sent a small unit of rangers, go and gather intel and report back, and then we'll make our decision. But no. Where shall I go? He asked the Lord. uh, Hebron, the Lord says. Simply, David obeys. He leaves Ziklag, this base that he made his own. He takes his growing family, verse 2. Excuse me, he takes his army plus their families, verse 3. He, he heads to Hebron, into the unknown. And God looks upon David with favor, verse 4, and gives him the position to which he was called. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and, they, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So It's a really special moment. If you've been with us a long time, if you're here through uh, our look at the book of 1 Samuel, you'll know that we've hit a really important milestone. If we had champagne, now would be a time to raise a glass. In this moment, in verse 4, although it's easy to miss, something has suddenly and dramatically and, I guess we might say, eternally, spiritually changed. God's anointed king is now formally reigning over God's people. Not all of them, granted. Certainly not in power and splendor. But it's here, verse 4, that is the beginning of the Davidic dynasty. And as we repeated again and again over Christmas time, Jesus was born in the line of David. It's it's this, verse 4, the beginning that we would trace through to the coming of the Lord Jesus, the true and eternal king. Here is God's kingdom on earth. 
But, but as Jesus taught us, it's just a mustard seed, isn't it? Do you think that the Babylonian historians would have noted down the date or the, the pharaohs of Egypt call a day of fasting or feasting? Of course not. And yet that mustard seed, which is God's kingdom, insignificant, almost unnoticed, it will, as Jesus taught us, grow into the greatest of all the garden plants with such great branches that, bird, that, plant, that birds can perch in its shade. Mark 4. We'll just note for now that Israel, the whole people of God, is made up of 12 tribes. And David is presently king of just one. How the other 11 come over to David is the concern of the next story. I'm going to leave that for Jonathan to take us through. For now, it's important to see that it's well, not just the tiny beginnings of the kingdom of God, but, but in that we see this beautiful humility and courageous obedience of the king God has appointed. Thirdly, in David, we see to real godly wisdom. Uh, uh, verse 4 to 7, David is on his throne, but we might say it's a tiny throne at this point. God's kingdom extends not across the world, nor, nor even all of Israel, but, but just one tribe. It, it's wise then that David begins to reach out to the other 11 tribes. I take it that's his heart, to, to, to unite God's people as one. So what he does next then is not so much political, which we might see as something insincere. No, it's, I think, something spiritual. It's something wise. God's shepherd is gathering God's sheep. And so David reaches out, interestingly, not to all of Israel, but just to one town, Jabesh Gilead, with... We're told of their significance by the narrator here. Verse 4, the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul. Now, if you've got a really good memory, and you can remember back before Christmas when we we finished the book of 1 Samuel, actually the whole book of 1 Samuel concluded with this account of these men recovering Saul's body. Just flip back, it's only a page for us, isn't it? We don't have to go back pages and pages. At one time, you'll chapter 31 and the final verses. It's worth remembering what these amazing guys did. Uh, chapter 31, verse 12. When they heard that Saul and his sons were dead, they marched through the night. If we had that map that Matt mentioned, we'd see that's a, kind of, that's a 20-mile round trip. At night, by torchlight, in enemy territory... They scooped up the bodies from the city wall of Beth Shan and then they made their way home. And 31 verse 13, they gave Saul and his sons the proper send-off they ought to have. Come back to, to Samuel. It's only a little, what would we call that, a little vignette maybe. But it does tell us a lot about these guys, doesn't it? They are certainly committed to Saul and his kingship. This is no token of grief. This is not just lowering a, mag, a flag to half-mast. That, that's not enough for these guys. They're brave. They, they head into Philistine lands to get the body back. But, but they're not foolish. They're not unthinking as they do this. It's not war with the city of Beth Shan they're after. They just want the corpse to be returned for a fitting burial. It shows a bit of spiritual maturity there too. They recognize the significance of honoring God's king, even Saul, in his death. And it's these people, 
it's to these people then that, that David makes his first appeal as he seeks to begin to gather the people around the throne. He offers them God's blessing for their kindness, verse 5, can you see? He prays for them that God may show them the same kindness and faithfulness they showed, verse 6. And then he goes further and promises them that he will do for the same for them as their king if, and I guess there's an implicit invitation here, if they will join Judah in the kingdom, verse 7. If in seeking God, David shows humility, if, if in heading straight to Hebron he shows courage, perhaps in this appeal to Jabesh Gilead we see wisdom needed for really good, godly leadership. I want to reflect a little more on those characteristics, humility, courage and wisdom, but we'll do that in a moment. First I want to touch on the story that begins here in, in the rest of chapter 2 and will be concluded as Jonathan comes to preach for us uh, in a fortnight's time. If the first half of chapter 2 is all about new beginnings, then the second half is about uh, old battles. While all this is going on for David back in Hebron, uh, in Israel, Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, has been made king, verse 9 of chapter 2. Now, it's notable how different that is. No consulting the Lord in prayer, no obeying the Lord's call, no wisdom in pursuing unity. The old commander, Saul's old general, Abner, knowing full well that the throne belongs to David, the Lord has given it to him, nevertheless, in this act of rebellion, coronates Ish-bosheth. It is an act of rebellion. Not just against David, but against the Lord and his word, which of course is a problem, as we know well. Because when conflict begins, as Harry and Meghan have reminded us, boys fight. That's not really newsworthy, is it? Abner takes some of Ishbosheth's guys and, well, he's quite deliberate, quite provocative. He heads towards Gibeon, verse 12. And of course, as they see them approaching, some of David's troops must go and meet them there. And so we've got Saul's old guard under the flag of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, coming together with David's new army, coming together, verse 13, at the pool in Gibeon. Well, in there, one group sat down, verse 13, on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Was there drinking involved? I I don't know, we're we're not told. Were there uh, young ladies that the men wanted to show off to? We're not told, we can guess. What we do know is that there's this call from the grizzled warrior Abner, who, who makes this really silly request to Joab, who's the commander from David's army, verse 14, let's have some of the young man get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. Where did he think this was going, really? Joab agrees. And so the sides are formed, verse 15, 12 guys for Ishbosheth, 12 guys for David. I guess it could have been nothing more than a wrestling match, an ancient world UFC Uh, Some bruises in the arena, shouting from the sidelines, 
everyone goes home at the end of the day. Perhaps it could have been that. But no. I believe the current term is they came packing. (laughs) Not guns, knives. Verse 16. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into the opponent's side and they fell down together. You're supposed to let your head sink into you. What a stupid waste of life. And of course, as they almost always do in these circumstances, things escalate. That venue, you can see it in the footnote at the bottom of your Bible, then that venue becomes known as the Field of Daggers. And what follows next in the next chapter is called the Battle of Gibeon. David's men took the overall victory, verse 17, but the cost was high. Three of the men on David's side, brothers, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, they chase after the fleeing Israelites. Abner, that old general, shouts back to Asahel, go after someone else, go after one of the younger men, verse 21, but, but, but Asahel doesn't relent. None of this should have happened. I wonder if perhaps for the first time we ought to feel a bit of compassion for Abner. Perhaps he realizes the folly and all he's done wrong. He's bigger and stronger, more experienced fighter than the kid who's chasing him down. What, what can he do? He, he appeals to Asahel again, verse 22. Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How can I look your brother Joab in the face? Perhaps we should feel not compassion, but disgust at the whining. He started the whole affair in the first place. Either way, the red mist has descended for Asahel. He's not going to be reasoned with. He's not going to be stopped. And so, awfully, Abner takes his spear and he thrusts it through Asahel. And verse 23, Asahel dies there on the spot. Now remember, he was one of three brothers, wasn't he? It doesn't take a genius to work out what's going to happen next. After a brief pause in hostilities, the sides reform and people want justice to be done. We're off again. But this time, Joab, he's the experienced commander on David's side. He's caught up. And so as we're reading, we're thinking, well, perhaps some age and wisdom will help here. And for the first time, it does. Abner and his men form up and take their stand on the top of a hill. Joab and his men not far behind. But now Abner's appeal is heard. Verse 26, Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Well, and Joab, Joab recognizes there is sense here. Verse 27 As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. But he did speak, and so the the pursuing will stop. Which brings to an end the battle of Gibeon. Abner heads home, Joab heads back to Hebron and David. We're told 360 of Abner's men didn't return, however, dead on the battlefield and 19 of Joab's men, 19 of David's men. It's a little snippet of history which we see uh, as we go on to chapter 3, this conflict will mark this, well, the next few years at least. Terrible, senseless war. Do you see that? Chapter 3 and verse 1. 
between the house of Saul and the house of David. Uh, 3 verse 1, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. But, as with the battle of Gibeon, little by little, it's the house of Saul that will get weaker and David's house will grow in strength. I, I take it that's the point of this list of his sons born at Hebron, his kingdom, despite the conflict and opposition, it's David's kingdom which will grow. I said I'd come back to those characteristics we saw in David at the beginning of of chapter 2, humility, courage, wisdom. If only the rest of the chapter could have preserved those characteristics. But, But where David is concerned... It's that that marks his words and his actions. And I want to say uh, humility, courage, and wisdom, that's appealing, isn't it? That's attractive. That's, that's what we want in our leaders. That's why we like that William and Kate have kept their peace, held their tongue, kept quiet in recent, recent days. There's a, a humility and a wisdom, isn't there? Humility, courage, wisdom. That's what marked David... It's these qualities that we see, of course, finally, fully, in God's true and final king of his kingdom. In Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's why Jesus is a king worth living for. That's why life in his kingdom, the church, where he reigns, is as close to heaven as we'll find on earth. By by contrast, this opposition that David faces, Abner and all the others... It it just reads as futile and unnecessary and violent and foolish. It's an opposition, a a kingdom that's far from godly. It is worldly, isn't it? Not humility, but arrogance. Not calm courage, but, but violent cowardice. Not generous wisdom, but divisive foolishness. These narratives, I think, in 2 Samuel prepare us so that when we come to the New Testament, we're, we're ready and expecting that Jesus won't be welcomed with arms wide open as he should be, as seems only reasonable, but would be opposed by, by arrogant, violent, foolish men and women. Jesus comes as the King, the Prince of Peace. He does speak about the reality of sin, but he comes offering forgiveness to all who will come to him in repentance and faith. What's not to love? And yet we've read the book of 2 Samuel. We, we, we're ready. We know what's coming. God's king will face worldly opposition. And so Jesus is met with crowds that jeer him, with leaders that plot against him. Stones are thrown at him. He is rejected and slandered, and then finally he's crucified. That awful, pointless battle of Gibeon is a a picture of the opposition that God's own final king would face as slowly but surely his kingdom was built. But but you see here too, don't you, that it's it's a picture of life today to some degree. The world will always oppose the church. You remember that important verse in John's Gospel, if the world hated Jesus... Well, why on earth would the world treat you or I as his followers any differently? Why, why would we expect anything less? The book of 2 Samuel prepares us for the opposition we see in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. 
But it also prepares us for the opposition we see today. We hear from our missions partners of people who who are leading the church and sharing the gospel, being imprisoned in North Africa. And we are deeply saddened, but we are not surprised. God's king, God's kingdom will always face violent opposition. But look, remember, this is part one. Part two is next week. Jonathan's going to finish the story in the next couple of chapters. It's really important that you hear that because the story isn't finished here. The mustard seed must grow. It will grow. It will become a great plant. The one tribe that now honor David as king will become the 12 in just a couple of chapters' time. And God's kingdom and God's king will ultimately be victorious, even through the opposition. You know that already, don't you? Take heart, stand firm. Jesus will win. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that in your Son we have one who leads us with humility and courage and great wisdom. Thank you that King Jesus knows us and loves us and is powerful to supply our every need. Thank you that as we learn here in the book of Samuel, as we will be reminded in our evening services as we uh, look to the book of Revelation, we see that King Jesus wins. Help us stand firm with him. Help us be ready for the opposition we face Help us be loving and compassionate with those who suffer for his sake. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.